you've made it. This is the last scheduled episode of Beyond Bitcoin. Grab a seat, get comfy, crack open that nice bottle of Bordeaux. We're going to be here for a while. A couple of months ago, Tim Swanson sent me a link to a white paper entitled An Architecture for the Internet of Money. It was a good read, and the author, Meher Roy, was kind enough to talk me through the tricky bits. The paper outlines a framework whereby existing technologies can be used in concert to create an international standard for transmitting value. His idea is inspired by the layers of the open systems interconnection model used today to standardise the communication of information through the internet, although Meher would hesitate to draw too much of a comparison. What's exciting about the idea is it shows us a world where value is super fluid, convertible from one form to another and transmissible in seconds at effectively no expense. It's also interesting to see how a person with a passion for crypto finance but little grounding in the culture can provide an alternative view of how this ferment of innovation might coalesce into a stable global financial system. Tim and Meher are both part of this episode, and Dominic Williams of Pebble threw in a sensible word about consensus systems around the hour and a half mark. If you're feeling studious, the first few pages of the white paper, linked in the notes, has some good diagrams which help with visualising the ideas Meher proposes. There are about two hours of content here, cut together from four interviews, so it's a bit choppy, but no well. Over to you, Tim. Uh, hey guys, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks again for the invitation. Um, it's, it's nice to, to be back with with you guys. Um, and uh, just a quick FYI, who I am. Uh, yeah, my name's again Tim Swanson. Uh, I've written a couple different uh, short books in this space um, after doing some research last year. And uh, I currently am I'm business head of business development with Melodic. It's an Asian-based exchange. And I'm also an advisor to the Hyperledger Project. And uh, my the, the opinions I express here are just my own. They don't represent anyone or any of the employees at any of the companies I work with. So uh, again, thanks for the invite. So you've been anyway, Tim. Oh, I'm really good. I've uh, been super busy with all these different projects that uh, actually I don't think most of them are announced yet. So they're not Bitcoin. They're all like um, regular fintech stuff at this point. They're just use some of this technology that uh, has been developed. So yeah, I, I know you're cutting your show off at this point, but if, if you want to have a detractor on, um, which is always healthy for you know discussion. Um, uh, regarding PBFD and, and Paxos, uh, Dominic Williams, he's making something called Pebble. Oh, cool. I'll be sure to get his details from you. Are you on the line, Meher? I, I am I am Meher Roy, and I am a contributor at the Hyperledger Project. And I recently wrote a paper called An Architecture for the Internet of Money. In this paper, I, I sketch out a preliminary architecture or my vision for the Internet of Money. And this is based on different assumptions to projects such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ripple. I work in the vaccines industry uh, for my day job and uh, live a parallel life in the cryptocurrency universe. Now, for the past year and a half, I have been I have been interested in the problem of how uh, cryptographic money systems are going to connect together to make a global financial system. When I started working on this problem, there was no such word as the internet of money. But over the past year, 
there there came two different articles one from andreas antonopoulos that bitcoin is the internet of money and then from ripple ceo chris larson that ripple is the internet of money and i came to realize that many participants in the cryptocurrency field have have this vision of the internet of money which i define as an an integrated global financial system that enables cheap and fast global flow of assets smart contracts smart property decentralized exchange of securities microtransactions machine to machine transactions and permissionless innovation in general so there's this concept floating around in many minds and i'm i'm uh, the problem i'm interested in how can we actually implement this concept given all of the realities of life realities meaning governments regulations etc i concluded around 8 or 9 months ago that both the ideas bitcoin is the internet of money and ripple is the internet of money are inadequate due to different reasons and it's these reasons that led me to think about if not bitcoin and ripple then what and finally i think i managed to solve the problem in my head for myself and that led to to this paper so what were the issues with uh with bitcoin and with ripple that um that kind of pre- prevent them from solving the problem as you as you see it so in my opinion when when andreas antonopoulos says bitcoin is the internet of money he is mistaking a tree for the forest bitcoin is a subset of the internet of money and cannot be the internet of money itself why there are there are three major reasons why 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 bitcoin is a tree in the forest and not the forest itself the first reason is the problem of asymmetric security when we are talking about the internet of money we are necessarily talking about integrating different kinds of assets like shares bonds maybe fiat money and other kinds of assets airline miles etc that people want to use in their daily lives without these assets there's no meaning to the word internet of money because if it can handle only cryptocurrency then yeah that's a decentralized currency not an internet of money the 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 if i have to sum up the problem of asymmetric security it is this any asset that you issue on top of the bitcoin blockchain it consumes the security the network security that miners provide but it contributes nothing towards adding the security to bitcoin itself to take an example consider a scenario where apple issues its shares on the bitcoin ledger and the total value of apple shares is 500 billion dollars we assume that the market cap of bitcoin at that time is 10 billion dollars and there has already been one more block reward halving so we are talking about say 2018 in that situation if there are decentralized exchanges happening with a protocol like counterparty these decentralized exchanges could easily be of the size of 2 or 300 million dollars because large institutional investors mutual funds pension funds may make transactions of that size when they are exchanging with each other 
Now the cost to attack the Bitcoin blockchain is lower than the transaction size because maybe you can attack the Bitcoin blockchain with a budget between 50 to 100 million dollars depending on the attacker's assumption to uh, access to spe specialized hardware. So you have this situation where the cost to attack the blockchain is smaller than the size of transactions happening and the cost is smaller than the benefit you can get from reversing transaction history. So can I, to, to frame this problem, so effectively the security that Bitcoin can provide is proportional to the market cap of Bitcoin, but the benefit for an attack is proportional to the value being transacted over the network, right? So when, when there's a significant divergence between the value being transacted on the network and the market cap of Bitcoin, that is a uh, situation of high systemic risk. And when we imagine the internet of money, um, and you imagine all the shares that are there in the world, all the bonds that are there in the world, property titles, etc. You could easily have greater than $100 trillion in assets. Do we really imagine that we are going to issue all of them on the Bitcoin blockchain and create this asymmetry, this risk of an attack? So this is the problem of asymmetric security. And I think it is very fundamental because the sidechains project cannot also solve this problem. As long as the sidechains are merge mine, they all depend on uh, securing the network by earning only Bitcoin, the currency. And therefore, the, even the sidechains project cannot solve this situation. Yeah, um, I'd like to jump in here real quick. Yeah, uh, so to, to discuss what Mayor here said, so yeah, there, there was a, a article I put together maybe six, seven months ago talking about this, this disproportional reward mechanism. Basically, miners, as, as Mayor pointed out, aren't destroying enough capital to, to secure it. And Jonathan Levine and Robert Sams and a few others have been have, have discussed this over the past year about, you know, are uh, do we have a one to one uh, capital destruction? Do we have are, are miners being rewarded enough to destroy the capital that they've been burning? And right now, you know, with with Bitcoin vanilla, if you will, you know, with with no colored assets, no meta coins, nothing on top, nothing, no, nobody piggybacking on the security. Um, it may be the case that it is secure to some extent. And as, as far as, you know, block reward havings, that's, that's another discussion. But yeah, what, what Mayor is saying is basically this, guys. Uh, you know, you take you take Apple stock, you take any of these uh, these large equity pools, um, and if you have 500 million, 600 million, whatever it might be, and it's a meta coin or a color coin, whatever you know protocol you want to use, use these uh, consensus, these embedded consensus protocols, whatever whatever they're actually going to be called. Um, it's it's cheaper to to simply uh, attack that particular meta asset uh, because it's not being pre uh, protected. It bas uh, protected enough. You basically have a top-heavy protocol because everyone's piggybacking off the senior shares and not actually uh, adding more uh, uh, incentive to to destroy the capital. There's no, there's nothing inside the current pooling software or current protocol to tell miners, hey, you need to destroy this much more capital because these 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 fractions of a coin, these watermark coins, are uh, actually represent uh, significantly more value. Um, so yeah, it creates. Uh, actually, uh, a counterparty may become a victim of its own success, if you will, uh, because it's becoming quite. You know, it's two to three percent of the network on any given day. Um, obviously, uh, the listeners, it, it's not an issue today or tomorrow or this week or something like that. It's it's something that would take place. 
place, uh, as Mayor said, potentially in the future if, if companies actually issue uh, equity um, onto the, the Bitcoin blockchain. So uh, regarding Blockstream, it's, it's interesting. Um, the really brilliant team, uh, you know, they raised 21 million. Um, one of the things that they've uh, quietly been um, t- talking with miners is something called trusted transparency. And uh, Mayher had, had a joke that uh, if, if you if you look at what Vitalik has pointed out, you know, that, that Bitcoin itself has uh, centralized to the point where you have a five of ten multisig that issues a Coinbase. Uh, so you, it's a five of 10 multi-sig that, that pays out $500 million or whatever the, the yeah, market cap is. Yeah. Now, that might not be a perfect analogy. I know Jeff Garzik disagreed with it on Twitter, but, uh, the point is, is, um, at the end of the day, what trusted transparency is this is, um, it, it effectively started as an, as an idea to prevent, um, any one particular hardware manufacturer from being able to take over the network. So the idea was uh, at least explained to me by Greg Maxwell back in May and what he's further elaborated this past year. It's this smart property feature to where even if you have a whole warehouse filled of, with these, these ASIC machines, um, each machine is controlled by a priv key, a private key. Um, and it, uh, can be, can, the idea is if, if somebody breaks in, physically breaks into one of these facilities, uh, this private key can be sent to this hardware and you can disable it. You can remotely kill it, essentially. Um, so the, the, therefore, the idea is this creates some kind of nominal decentralization within a centralized uh, physical apparatus. Um, the, the, the issue with this, and I think Dave Hudson's kind of articulated this, uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, – you know, known at this point about what he's what he's described but if you create another private key system effectively to turn these machines off you are a uh, effectively creating a second blockchain that needs to be secured and uh, it also creates an easier kind of a, a at vulnerability to attack. So they solve one problem. They solve the, the problem of, of machines being uh, certain hardware being used to attack the network. But then they introduce another problem, which is single point of failure. Hey, if, if, if there are core devs um, that have these keys to send signals to the hardware to do this, well, all you have to do then is compromise these core devs. Um, and obviously, you know, it's, it's not an issue today or tomorrow. It's something in the future. But the, this, this, this tech has been um, slowly being rolled out by some Western manufacturers. I know Spontulis has talked about it and Bitfury's talked about it. And uh, the one issue for why it's being adopted by these guys uh, or is being promoted to be adopted by these guys under the, the term trusted transparency is because sidechains themselves are, are relatively insecure. It, if it costs you nothing to, to merge, then it also costs you nothing to attack. And so the idea is this. Um, that if you do have a, uh, let's say Bitfury hardware that's being part, it's being used in a 51% attack on a side chain, well, then these core devs could effectively, or the hardware manufacturer, whoever controls these private keys, uh, can send a kill signal to that, that hardware and taking them offline. Um, again, you know, obviously it's, it's not completely finalized. It's up for discussion, but that's the, the gist of what this trusted transparency um, initiative and in, in, in how it's working with sidechains, or at least with the Blockstream implementation of it. Well, the, the ironic part, and obviously I'm sure I'll get a lot of flack on Reddit and Twitter for saying this, but uh, and again, I, I know they, Greg Maxwell means the best. Like it's not a, it's not a matter of intention. Like I think that they they truly are trying to solve some kind of issue, but but they introduce, like I said, another vulnerability. And 
the, the, the ironic part is this is if you still have, you know, 10 pools and they are nominally decentralized or controlled by these private keys, well, you, you effectively are setting up the same kind of system that something like Hyperledger or Eris is. And you have these validated nodes. Like, uh, Hyperledger has validated nodes. In order to be on the network, you need to SSL from the CA. So you, you have these nodes that relatively know each other or at least to have some kind of doxing tape, uh, capability, just like you have pools today that have doxed. Like everyone knows who runs most of these pools, like 85% of pools that are, are hash rates known by who, who, like the known, like the people who actually operate them. So you end up with the same system of Hyperledger, but it's significantly more expensive. It's like 500, 600 million dollars to maintain. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's necessarily bad, but you end up reinventing something that could be done for, you know, significantly fraction uh, of the price. The, the second problem is, um, the, the origins of Bitcoin have been from the, say, crypto anarchist community. And they have led the evolution of the Bitcoin blockchain towards, at least in theory, enabling strong anonymity through quite a, quite a, quite a few of the working software that are now out in the market. Now, strong anonymity might be a great feature for a stateless cryptocurrency. But if you actually want to use the Bitcoin blockchain for other purposes, it, it ceases to be a great feature. For instance, if you are imagining a, a large company issuing its shares on the Bitcoin blockchain, then you have the situation where the transactions that are happening on, on, with the shares are potentially anonymous, which means two or, two or three different things. The first being uh, governments cannot levy any capital gains tax on, on profits they might, that might have accrued to somebody while holding that share. Now, if governments cannot levy their tax, they can always forbid the large companies from issuing shares on the Bitcoin blockchain or any anonymous ledger. So Bitcoin may be unshutdownable, but certainly its applications as a shares ledger are definitely restrictable. The second issue, and I think, I think this is a psychological issue, if you are top management at a, at a public company or, you know, the CEO of a public company, if you have issued your shares on a ledger that in which transactions are potentially anonymous, that could mean that a situation arises where, let's say 15% of your shareholders are not known to you. And this is very different from today's system where every country has a registrar that tracks who owns shares. Now, 15% of your shareholders not being known to you may not be a very comfortable situation for anyone because if you don't know who owns it, it might as well be your competition owning it. And who knows in what kind of business situation is a hostile takeover situation and that's possible because you didn't know who was owning the shares. What I'm trying to say is there are many real world use cases in which the market itself is going to want to have an identity based system and shares are one use case like that. The other kind of use case is theft insurance. Circle can claim theft insurance because um, Circle can provide theft insurance because um, it's a known entity and its customers will be known. If you have purely the Bitcoin ledger, which is anonymous, there are many kinds of use cases like issuing shares, theft insurance, etc. that cannot be done just with the Bitcoin ledger. And somehow, you, in order to penetrate all of these applications, we are going to need an integrated identity system and we cannot build 
a good identity system with Bitcoin, the base blockchain. So this is what I think will restrict the blockchain from encompassing other use cases. The, uh, the identity system problem is something that I've actually, my, the next episode that's going to come out is actually about, uh, about the problem of identity systems because there's such a key element of this whole sphere that hasn't been, uh, hasn't been addressed at this stage in, in a way that, um, that solves the problem for all parties involved. Yeah, and, and, and maybe it's very hard to solve it on Bitcoin because the way, you, the way you can solve identity is to have some kind of system where you need to provide your identity in order to do a transaction. And if you don't provide your identity, like if you don't provide a link to your identity, then the transaction doesn't go through. If you have a system like that, you can, in theory, make all of the transactions traceable. People originating the transaction may not be known to the validators, but they can know that somebody knows their identity. Otherwise, they don't allow the transactions to happen. But if you have a censorship-resistant ledger in which you cannot have this kind of rule set, and that also has protocols with which you can completely make cash untraceable, it is extremely hard to build an identity system and to integrate identity with it. Yeah, and, and this is, I think, a big problem when you think of Bitcoin as the internet of money. Okay, and so that's the identity side of it. What's the uh, what are the remaining issues? Uh, actually, let me jump in real quick with uh, identity. Um, I, sorry to interrupt you, Mayor. Um, you know, listeners might be interested in looking at some of the stuff. Uh, Richard Brown from IBM. Uh, he's got a really popular uh, blog. He discusses identity like once a month, kind of. Um, and uh, David Birch, uh, they're both in the UK, by the way. Uh, David Birch actually, I think, wrote a, a book called. Um, Identity is the new money. I believe that's what it was called. And um, I, obviously, you know, you get to pick and choose who your guests are. But uh, they would be pretty good people for, for just the audience to, to go out and look at because uh, they're familiar with how, you know, what blockchains are in general. Um, and, and I suppose the only um, uh, popular or real popular system that's been implemented at this point that uses this tech that, that we that's gotten any any amount of traction is one name.io and i believe that uses the the name coin uh system under underlying it and i'm not saying that uh that uh, you couldn't cobble the something together for for bitcoin itself but as mayor said i mean at the end of the day if you want to deal with identity and, and issuance of credit and stuff like that um the way the current protocol is designed it's it's not well suited for that you end up having to you know put together some um exterior systems um to, to track for example credit scores and so on uh because best practices are, is not to reuse your your same bitcoin address that's just from a technical standpoint um and there's other issues too but uh it, it, the bottom line is is trying to make bitcoin do everything under the sun be the jack of all trades may not be the best uh best way to handle it it's like a clown car i mean you can you can fit all these things into the car uh but it doesn't mean it's, it's particularly safe or fast and so forth so rather than rather than shoehorning everything i know uh Maher, like if you guys read his paper uh, he describes you know several different types of protocols you can make purposely designed for those things uh obviously i'm not going to win any friends on reddit for that but at the end of the day <laughs> you know uh, organizations and institutions that want to integrate this stuff they, they might be more suited or more more interested in, in something that is is purposely designed for that rather than just trying to to make a uh, a certain hammer that we have today be the, the the one tool that rules them all and the final thing that that for me bit kills bitcoin as the internet of money is that the economics of proof of work mining and whether they are sustainable in the long term are 
it's 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 a it's a it's an it's a it's an unanswered question and tim has captured most of the discussions most of the reasons in his blog and which is an amazing blog and because we don't know whether proof of work is sustainable in the long term um would would you want would you as a company or as a bond issuer want to risk issuing everything on the bitcoin blockchain and uh, ha- have it be that it it proves to be non sustainable and your assets or your business goes under risk i think the fundamental risk posed by broken economics in, of proof of work will will prevent bitcoin from growing beyond a certain niche when it comes to other kinds of assets maybe tim you can add something here sure yeah so just to go back i mentioned that i wrote an article i think like five six months ago the title of the article is will colored coin extensibility throw a wrench into the automated information security cost of bitcoin and uh it actually got picked up i think business insider threw a different title on it and made it seem like it was a fatal you know problem in 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 the long run again bitcoin as itself is there's nothing else being attached to bitcoin that's piggybacking off the security and not paying it's essentially this fair share if you will um then yeah you you, you could have a self-terminating chain sooner rather than later uh with bitcoin itself this vanilla the way it was designed six years ago um even then there there might be a self-terminating issue that that um uh, what's his name? Ray Dillinger pointed out. Basically, if you don't have a you know doubling of value at the same time as you have a block reward having, and if you don't have fees being um being used to compensate it and, and uh, to 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 uh, to replace the seniorage rewards, uh, these block rewards, then yeah, in the long run, it, you know you just run out of security. I'm not saying that's going to happen immediately with Bitcoin. Obviously, we'll find this out empirically over the next two, six, ten years. Um, but uh, with with fees, I, I know uh. Uh, people say, oh, you know, people are going to start using fees. But if you actually look at the, the last three years, um, there's some good charts out there. Jonathan Levine has some charts. I mean, you could get a chart on blockchain.info. It shows this. You could also get a chart from uh, Oregon of Cordy. It's one of the best uh, Bitcoin mining blogs out there. And if you just look at uh, fees uh, to miners, direct to miners, it's actually like at a two-and-a-half-year low. It's actually declined uh, significantly um, just because, in general, people don't want to pay fees. And, and, and two, number number two, most people just – there's just not a lot of commerce that takes place on the in, on the Bitcoin network. I'm not saying this this will always be the case. Maybe we'll have an uptick. But uh, so far, in practice, it's been a lot different than in theory than, than what was proposed six years ago. I believe this is Section 6 or 7 of the Bitcoin white paper. Satoshi lays out the fee argument. Um, and uh, or, actually, Oregon of Cordy had a, had a new chart this last week. Uh, if, if you uh, look at uh, the fees per block, it's actually uh, declined. It's actually, I think, about a two-year low. Um, now, again, maybe maybe it'll have an uptick. Maybe for whatever reason, people will start paying more. But if you end up paying more, then you'll see that the actual cost, again, um, is quite expensive once you remove these subsidies. Uh, I'm sure I'll get a lot of flack for that. Uh, but that, that's yeah the basic argument that I've been saying the last uh, year or so. And obviously, there's some other people who, who've done a good job contributing to this discussion, too, like Robert Sams. He's written uh, some, some good articles on that as well. So in so to, to summarize, it's it's based, it's these three reasons that that lead me to believe that Bitcoin is good maybe as a as a stateless cryptocurrency, but that's only one section of the whole Internet of Money. It's it's a tree in the forest, not the forest itself. Then the second question that we run into is uh, is Ripple the Internet of Money? Now Ripple by itself is 
very interesting idea and in terms of the user experience ripple is an amazing is is an amazing system it's you can send money anywhere in the world any type of currency in 5 seconds and it 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 just looks like a better design for the internet of money that said there are certain problems with imagining ripple as the internet of money and i can i can explain what uh, what these are the first one is probably the probably the most minor but the but there are certain doubts about the consensus algorithm of ripple and probably the consensus algorithm of ripple has led to its failure to decentralize so these issues were brought to the fore when uh, at with the recent stellar fork issue where stellar the stellar network had to go to one validator node and the stellar team has created a new pact with david mazieres a professor at stanford to build a better algorithm for the ripple slash stellar networks now this problem of consensus has led to the ripple network being extremely concentrated there are five important nodes in the network to which everyone refers to and all of these five nodes are owned by ripple itself the ripple labs team itself so it remains to be seen whether that project proceeds in the future to have a robust consensus algorithm and actually manage to decentralize because if if the project doesn't decentralize then we can imagine ripple as a new form of a bank a new bank that integrates five or 10 banks together to create a foreign exchange market for instance but that is again only a section of the internet of money not the internet of money itself the the second the second issue with with ripple is what i call the scalability of trust problem now the ripple design is different from bitcoin as there are defined companies that run the network that company right now is maybe just ripple but in the future it may be ripple plus just coin plus another few of the companies if it's if it manages to decentralize now if you imagine this system where there are five or six american companies or let's say western companies running the running the ripple network why would for instance a chinese bank issue issue its chinese yuan on the on the ripple network um because you have a limited set of companies running the network there is an element of trust and why do we imagine that this trust will scale all over the world so um for instance there are countries that are you know um trade partners with the united states or do not have a have necessarily the great a great relationship with the united states and why do we imagine that everyone in the world is going to come onto this singular network that is that is that is controlled by by a set of set of defined players most probably ge- geographically concentrated in one country in the world tim do you have a comment on that yeah so i'm going to sound like a, a bitcoiner here I'm, give me give me that hat for the first time in my life uh well at least in the last year or so uh so <laughs> it's actually funny i was actually much more bullish a couple of years ago in, in terms of bitcoin itself uh so uh yeah let me just be a, a slight contrarian to a little bit what mayor said um so david schwartz he's the chief cryptographer over at ripple labs and back in may of 2013 i have a i have a quote in, in one of my books chapter 16 i think and uh, i'm actually looking at the quote yeah it says uh 
so so David was responding to people saying, hey, you know, it's not open source, it's not fully decentralized, what's the deal, bro? And so he said this, he says, um, we've made the source code open to several different outside groups for auditing purposes, but as soon as the source code is widely available, people will almost certainly run start running validators on the network. At that point, any changes to the transaction per Transaction processing have to be agreed upon. Once you decentralize system or it decentralizes itself, there's no going back. We don't want it to be easy for one party to control it once it reaches, uh, one, it once anyone can run the source. So again, I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, that's the best, uh, uh, excuse, but again, this was back in May 2013. It wasn't open source. Now Ripple D is, uh, my understanding is that they will, like to uh, have more validators, basically all their banking partners. I think they, the, the goal is to, to each have a, a run a validator. Um, and again, I know that sounds like one of those Bitcoiner excuses. Hey, in the future, it'll do this. Uh, again, I, I think Chris Larson sets, is, 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 uh, sets himself apart from most CEOs in this space and that he's very pragmatic. Um, he wants to solve a specific solution. I don't think he's trying to make Ripple to be Ripple maximalism. I don't think he's trying to make it be this uh one ledger to rule them all um at least in his public comments uh, i don't think he's, he's he's really said that um so uh, i i think i think the, the goal that they're looking at trying to do right now is is with swift and correspondent banking uh maybe they are trying to to make it do everything i know that codius is is uh is their smart contracting platform i think evan um is is leading that and I, I, I actually, when I, when I introduce people to this space, I'm like, hey, guys, or new people to this space, I'm like, be sure to check out this other consensus mechanism. Again, I'm not saying that they're necessarily as secure as Bitcoin. I, th- I think they solve two different problems, as Mayer said. Uh, Bitcoin solves a cypherpunk problem. And uh, Ripple, or the original Ripple uh, idea from Ryan Fuger from 2004 solves uh, basically a Hawala problem. Like, this, uh, if people aren't familiar with Hawala, it's this informal uh, value transfer uh, system that's been around for thousands of years. And Ripple uh, basically added, Ripple Labs added uh, a, these trust lines to what already existed and added a native coin to that. Uh, now, I'm not defending, you know, certain features that were added, uh, but uh, at, the, at the end of the day, I think that uh, Ripple, uh, at least the way the value that they're proposing it now, is a bit different than, than what Bitcoin's, uh, at least the, the main push behind Bitcoin is right now. Um, and as far as Mayher's comment about it can't be the Internet of Money, um, you know, I, I don't have it a, <laughs> an opinion either way on that. I, I uh I, I think that it was designed to do specific things that, that Mayer uh, has in his in his paper. Um, like it, it, I really recommend people to s- at least uh, looking through the, the the parts where Mayer points out with the you can make a real time growth real time growth settlement protocol, a decentralized exchange protocol. I think that's the, that's the key here is uh, Ripple maybe could cobble on these things, maybe Bitcoin can cobble on these things. The question is is uh, is is it secure enough to to withstand attack from uh, from economic vulnerabilities, if you will. And maybe, maybe Mayer's right. Maybe the, it's not, it won't become decentralized to the degree to where it opens itself up for single points of failure. If it only runs five validators and, and hackers learn where those five validators are, um, then you could, you know, go undermine those or if, if there's some economic reason to do so. I think that's an interesting insight there, Tim, that Ripple really is a Hawala system and Bitcoin is the cypherpunk system and they've really, uh, you know, which was prophesized way back in the FAQ and what, 93? Sure, yeah. And again, I'm not uh, trying to diminish cypherpunks at all. I mean, I have several friends that are cypherpunks, or at least claim to be cypherpunks. And, you know, th- th- they were 
they've had this 30 year, you know, if you look at John Matonis, he's been writing about this, these ideas for since the eighties. Uh, if you look at his old papers and I know Tim May was obviously the one who spearheaded, you know, combining all these, uh, these cypherpunk ideas. Um, I, I just think that they're fighting a war that most people aren't really interested in. And I'm not saying that that, that, that means that their, their battles aren't unimportant. Like I know PGP obviously was a big one back in the early nineties with, uh, Phil Zimmerman. Um, but again, Satoshi was trying to solve a, an issue. If you look at in section one, he talks about online commerce and, uh, trusted third parties. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned this several times, like trusted third parties was, was talked about like 11 times in the whole paper and reversibility was talked about five times. So he's talking about specific issues that cypherpunks really cared about. And at the end of the day, consumers, at least most consumers aren't cypherpunks and they really don't care if there's trusted third parties or who has their information or if there's insurance or mediation. In fact, most people want insurance and mediation and or cashback rewards, if you will, um, that require identity, you know, uh, re, uh, adding costs to it. Like one of the, the, the cost benefits of Bitcoin originally um, six years ago was it reduced supposedly mediation and transaction costs. Uh, because you didn't have to deal with effectively what is KYC. And, uh, Peter Todd, I think rightly points out, uh, that one of the ironic things is, um, and this is not to diminish VCs coming in and trying to create values. VCs are going to find out the hard way that when you add, um, you know, this identity, these, uh, KYC AML requirements that it really just makes it a more expensive version of PayPal. Now I'm not defending, you know, uh, uh, the, the dark net group of segment of the space. Actually, I think that that actually, uh, pushes away normal adoption, um, because most people don't care about dark net stuff and they're okay with being doxxed. Um, so you have this, you know, inside the community itself, the Bitcoin community, you have this, uh, pull between the cypherpunk elements and who originally effectively created it, uh, versus people who actually want to use a rail system. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's the end of the day. Uh, maybe, maybe what people want is maybe a third option or maybe the Huala option or this, this, this Codius option that, that Ripple's developing now is, is more suited for, for their needs. Um, it, again, it, it comes down to what are your business needs? What are your consumer needs? And maybe, maybe one's better than the other. Maybe none of them are. Maybe, maybe Hyperledger is no good for them all. I mean, it's, again, it, it comes back down to what are your specific needs and wants? And, uh, you have to go from there with scoping out what the, the business requirements are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. <clears throat> What I'm attempting to say here is um, that internet of money, the term internet of money is actually a very big word because in a way you're trying to draw an analogy with the internet of information, which is this amazing communication system you have that links everyone in the world. And if you imagine the internet of money, the, the only kind of system that can live up to that name is one in which all sorts of assets and all sorts of people around the world can be on that on the same platform in a sense or a similar kind of financial system it is a huge name to live up to and i'm not i'm not i'm not saying that bitcoin is is not a good idea it's a great idea for for a particular market ripple is a great idea for another market this kind of digital hawala market or um, doing, let's say, fast exchanges between currencies. It's a great idea for that market. But these ideas by themselves, they, they, they cannot be a global internet system for everyone on planet Earth. And there's a difference between um, these ideas and that ideal. And all I'm trying to point out is... Um, 
if you have if you ha if you have any kind of system in which there is a certain trust in a in a few parties that trust is not going to scale all 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 over the world it cannot scale all over the world and that is the only limitation i'm trying to trying to point out i'm not i'm not making a judgment on how decentralized the ripple network it or whether it is good or bad i'm just saying if if there is an element of trust it is not going to scale all over the world and if it's not going to scale all over the world to all geographies then then it is smaller than the internet of money the internet of money has to be something that is at a bigger scale do you do you understand that of course an internet of money has to be absolutely all encompassing all encompassing it has to have all assets all sorts of nations all sorts of people with different kind of ideologies not just cipher punks so the internet of money is going to be is going to be let's say a more neutral system in my opinion and 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 actually this 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 shows the one of the other problems with imagining ripple as the internet of money so ripple is the singular ledger with one defined set of rules so it is public it has a defined set of transactions and um, it doesn't have any access control so if i am a chinese citizen and i i can send you chinese yuan with ripple the chinese government actually forbids me to do that so it has no access control it's one ledger that is that is public and the whole world in the, if you look at the whole world there are many different other kinds of needs that people have for and, I, and i'll take one example central banks if we imagine a system which is the internet of money we are going to need to have some way of integrating the functions of a central bank in that system because fiat is not going to die for in a, in a hurry it, it's going to be at least there for the next 50 years or say or something so we are going to need a way to integrate the functions of the central bank in in this integrated global financial system now if you imagine what kind of ledger a central bank would want it would definitely not be a public ledger without any access control where anyone can can do a transaction it would be a ledger which is probably private and has access to only accredited financial institutions so it's a different need in the market and one ledger like ripple cannot grow to encompass all the needs of all the people in the in the market so so necessarily the internet of money starts to need a different kind of design a design which uh, yeah is adaptable to everyone in the world yeah so uh I, i just wanted to say just just so people know i'm not like anti uh any of these groups and for objectivity and and for balance i, I certainly recommend all listeners to you know uh look up some of the the, the more bullish uh views and uh, uh like Joel Manigro he's a, a a partner i think a vc partner or vc associate over at union square part uh union square partners which is a uh It's a venture fund out in New York cuz it's invested in several Bitcoin companies. I think they invested in Coinbase's uh, Series A. Anyway, so they uh he he wrote an article a couple months ago called Bitcoin App Stack. And I it, incidentally it uh it's it's similar to some extent than uh the Mayhers uh, part of Mayhers paper and I, you know I tweeted out someone's like hey did you did you read his paper? And he says he hasn't. So um it looks like you know independently people are coming to 
come up with this, this stack idea, you know, whether or not there's there's one particular stack that, that works out, like, we'll find out, you know, in the long run, you know, if, if there's a LAMP stack equivalent. Um, for the listeners, LAMP means uh, Linux, Apache, MySQL, uh, PHP, or Python, or Perl. There was this idea back in the late 90s, early 2000s of, of putting together this tech to, to build these different technologies that we take for granted today, um, at least on the, the cloud side and uh, the front end side. So, um Anyway, so uh, that, that, that was an interesting article I think people would be interested in seeing. Uh, blockstream.com also has some really cool blog posts uh, from from the Blockstream team. There's like, a, I think Adam Back has made a couple of different posts. Greg Maxwell has. Really smart guys. Again, I wish them the best of luck. I just think that uh, the, the, they might be running into, I think it's called the SSE, the Second System um, Syndrome, or SSS, uh, Second System Syndrome. It's a is the issue is uh, you, you you built the first system you know you 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 pulled out all the things you didn't want so that way you can meet the the deadlines at your company and now you have a you have a chance to build a second one and uh, again I'm not saying that they're going to fail or anything like that but I think that, uh, that there's other ways of trying to do exactly what they're wanting to do but for a fraction of the, of the business costs um, and then some other uh, other consensus. Guys in this consensus as a service area, Eris Industries, uh, check them out. They just launched in, in, in December. Tendermint, um, it's by Jay Kwan. He's, uh, he's out in San Francisco here. And, um, he, he actually just left his, uh, the Genesis block on Testnet live, um, on New Year's Day. Uh, Pebble with Dominic Williams. Um, and there's several other ones out there I've, I've mentioned in other presentations. But yeah, you know, uh, I, I think this, this space is, is ripe for, for looking at, uh, Different, different problems. And as, as Mayher says, you know, what are the needs? How do you scope these out for, for either as a, as a consumer or as a business, as an enterprise? If you're a government entity like a central bank, um, I mean, do, are, is there just one that meets all your needs? Do you cobble together different things? Can we use something traditional like a, a simple IBM database, an Oracle database? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, there's lots of different options. Uh, it's a very competitive market. And I think uh, the, it's, uh, just like there's multiple car brands out there today, that there will be multiple different uh, you know, consensus systems or, or ledger systems out there to choose from in the future. I've actually, uh, I've actually covered, um, had an interview with Jay Kwan uh, about Tendermint a while ago. And um, that was really amazing. Like totally new, uh, totally new consensus system. Well, I, th- I think his paper's online actually now, and so is Tezos. That's another one. T E Z O S. What was the What was the other paper? Yeah, so uh, a guy named Ellen Goodman. That's his pseudonym. Um, he put together a paper called Tezos, and it's he's got a position paper and a white paper, and he's building the software. I think he actually hired the, the team. Uh, I've talked to him. I I know who he is, but the the it's T E Z O S. He's tackling tackling another side of of this consensus mechanism space. Uh, and by the way, uh, the listeners, if you're interested, the consensus as a server, a consensus as a service idea. I believe the first person um, that I ever heard say that uh, was uh, one uh, one Baptist Bennett. He's the uh, the guy behind Filecoin and, and um, he's a really smart guy. He's out here too. Um, I think he was through Y Combinator uh, this this past summer. Um, so you can check out his stuff too. He's, he's got some interesting ideas uh, in terms of what the future looks like. Cool. Back to you, Mehir. So um, <clears throat> now I actually think there's there's a there's a third kind of idea that we must evaluate when we are thinking about the Internet of Money. So and let me explain this third kind of idea. The third kind of idea is: Can we use the same design principles 
that were used to build the internet of information to build a global integrated financial system and what are these design principles the first the first principle is that the whole stack of the internet of information it consists of a set of standards and these standards do not have any beneficiary parties so if you look at the internet of information there are uh, there are standards which are the internet protocol transmission control protocol hypertext transfer protocol http and these are just ways of communication that we have standardized across the world that if you send want to send data from eight point a to point b this is the format that you should use to do it and if you look at these standards these standards are actually different from bitcoin so many times we say bitcoin is a protocol but bitcoin is not a protocol in the sense the internet protocol is a protocol because bitcoin has a set of defined beneficiaries like satoshi nakamoto owns a million coins some early adopter owns a lot of coins and a pure standard is just a way of doing things that anyone in the in the world can adopt so the internet of information is all is completely built on these open standards and the the question becomes um what if the internet of what if we imagine the internet of money just as consisting of standards to create ledgers and move money around the world so we just have certain standards to do to do things to think to 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 do financial operations the second thing is um the the internet of information protocols are are structured in such a way that the protocols use the services of each other and connect to make a communication system for the world so for instance http it uses the services of the tcp protocol uh and which uses the internet protocol to send packets across the world and the internet protocol then use the ethernet standards to which further uses the physical infrastructure to send data signals so it's a bunch of standards and these standards are using each other to execute a complicated operation now my question is what if there was a way by which we could have a protocol to make contracts and this protocol would use protocols to do payments and exchanges which would further use protocols to do uh protocols for the operation of ledgers and all of these protocols would connect together to make a global financial system so the kind of imagination uh, i have is the three of us me um arthur and tim we are we are playing a poker game and on 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 the internet of money somewhere in the future and the way we are playing the poker game is to make a contract you have let's say a set of oracles that are executing the contract but there's a def- defined standards by which we can make the contract and then whenever whenever in the in the operation of a game there needs to be a money transfer then the the contract making protocol it refers to let's say a payment and exchange protocol that allows you arthur to send money starting from new zealand dollars to let's say the us dollars and to do this transfer of money across the world there are other protocols which are the protocols for the creation of ledgers that are utilized so the contract making protocol uses protocols for payment and exchange 
which further uses protocols for the operation uh, for the operation of ledgers and it's just these standards that that are common across the world and they are interconnecting together to allow us to play our poker game which is essentially a smart contract i think this is probably a good i actually did covered codius a while back but uh, and the uh, and the idea of smart oracles executing contracts but i found myself way behind the conversation uh, for the whole interview. And I feel like we should probably cover um, this idea of contract executing oracles before we move forward, because I think that's a pretty key, that's a key component to this whole, uh, this whole idea. So an, an oracle is just a fancy name for a server. It is just that. So um, an oracle is essentially a, a server that is executing a code and Let's say, let's say, um, let's say you and I, Arthur, want to bet on the next cricket match, right? Uh, if uh, it's a match between, let's say, uh, New Zealand and, and, and India, if India wins, I you you put in five dollars and I I put in five dollars. If India wins, I get ten. If New Zealand wins, you get ten, right? All right. Now, now this bet is can be represented as a code because. Let's say you can imagine it as a code in which there's there's one line of code that says fetch data from XYZ database around the world. And then if the data is such that India has won, then you must adjust the balance of Meher's account inside the contract to plus 10. And if, if the data is such that New Zealand has won, you have to increment Arthur's account in such a way that his balance reaches 10, right? The contract has the code has a further line which says once this once this is done, you must recredit both uh, the balances back to the participants. So you can imagine the code as receive incoming balances, fetch data, do some logic on data, and then recredit back the balances. Now you need a place where you want to run this code, and you you'd imagine that this should be a place that neither you control nor I control. So you, we can imagine this as a server. What Codius has done is instead of having one single server, what if we had 10 of them? And all 10 of them are going to execute the code and a majority of them need to agree on a result of the contract in order to disperse the funds. So let's say there are 10 servers that are executing our India versus New Zealand bet and if seven of these agree that, yeah, New Zealand did win and you should get $10, then, then those seven servers can issue an instruction on the Ripple ledger and transfer you $10. So when the contract starts, you transfer money to an address controlled by these 10 servers and I transfer money to an address controlled by these 10 servers the code gets executed. After the code gets executed, those servers transfer the winner, which in this case is you, $10 back. That's the Codius innovation with smart oracles, is kind of combining both the data feed and the execution of the, uh, of the contract into a decentralized or somewhat distributed group of, of servers. Exactly, exactly. So it is essentially a, a set of servers that are running a code and that code is dictating who gets how much money 
for me that is a that is a smart contract it's just a piece of code that dictates who gets how much money it's very simple now all all sorts of games like poker blackjack or whatever are are smart contracts in the vision i was telling you about what if you you had a, like a standardized protocol to make these contracts which is what somewhat codeus is trying to do a standardized set uh, a software which can govern the operation of these servers and then standardized ways by which i can interact with these servers and our interactions can make a smart contract now if you imagine that when i am i want to send money to the to this account which is controlled by by the by these by the servers what if there were standardized protocols for the world by which i can exchange money and pay uh, and make payments and uh, i use these protocols to send the money to the servers and while we are trying to do an exchange or a payment operation what is being utilized is a set of ledger protocols that govern the behavior of ledgers around the world so standardized ways to do contracts standardized ways to do payment and exchanges and standardized ways to build ledger and these protocols then connect together like the internet of information to create an internet of money right and it's that standardization is what uh, is what actually allows this to be a neutral and all encompassing idea exactly so 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 there are there are there are, there are quite a few things about about this approach for instance if you are just doing standardization of financial transactions then by by definition this is token agnostic the standard should work as well for fiat money shares or uh, or cryptocurrencies because it's just a standard way of doing things um so this this stack itself if 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 you imagine a stack like that and my paper is imagining a stack like that and laying out how we could build a stack like that this stack is token agnostic like it works as good as for fiat money as it does for shares and it it works equally well for tokens issued bitcoin tokens issued by coinbase on on a ledger all of these different assets are all covered by the same set of same set of standards is token agnostic the other advantage of this approach is um, this kind of standard eventually becomes fork resistant if you wanted to change the internet protocol it's really hard to create a new standard and convince everyone in the world to adopt a new standard in fact they are trying to do this there was internet protocol version 4 and they indicated a better one version 6 and it has proven a very hard task to upgrade from version 4 to version 6 thing is when you have standards for doing something across the world uh, we me- we measure things in centimeters it's a standard it's very hard to change that kind of thing so if if you imagine the internet of money being standards it will eventually become fork resistant this is not this is dissimilar to bitcoin and ripple where because there are specialized beneficiaries so bitcoin has early adopters because there are specialized beneficiaries to both bitcoin and ripple xrp also has certain people who own a lot of xrp there the tendency is there to fork these things because they they have specialized beneficiary parties but if you have a pure standard there's no point forking that pure standard after a point when once it is good enough the third thing is standards are generally uncontrolled by a single company or a government or even a network a standard is its own thing and it's a public good 
And because it's a public good and just a defined way of doing things, it is easy to spread them across nations. If you look at the Internet of Information, the Chinese have their own version of it. That is, let's say, pro-censorship. The Swiss have their own version of it. The Americans have their own version of the Internet. And it, it, this is possible because it's an open standards and you can add functionality on top of the standards to make it the way you want to be. What if the best way to actually spread an, a global financial system across the world was to make a set of standards such that every country or every community could tweak the standards the way they wanted to and st still it functions as a global financial system. This is the philosophy behind my approach. What are the sets of standards that we are going to need? And I demonstrate what, what standards are actually needed to do pretty much everything pretty much every financial operation that is done today. Actually, maybe I should start with a, with a logical organization. Yes, sounds good. So, so my stack, the stack that I imagine is, the bottom of the stack is the Internet of Information. It's the TCP IP protocol suite. We assume that the world has a communication system. Now, built with this communication system, is a set of ledgers or databases. They're really databases, but we should call them ledgers because we deal with money. So that is a ledger layer, which is a set of ledgers for the whole world. And you can, be, you can create infinite amounts of them and pretty much anyone can create a ledger. So it's, it's free. So that's the ledger layer. On top of it is the payment and exchange layer, which tackles the problem if I own some asset on one ledger. Let's say I have Swiss francs on the UBS ledger and I want to pay you Arthur and you want um, and you want say uh, New Zealand dollars for from ASB bank. I will need to do some kind of some set of operations to convert my Swiss francs to New Zealand dollars and maybe these operations are exchange operations or operations of other kinds. So the payment and exchange layer is a set of standards for doing exchange or payment operations. And there are four, four standards, four protocols that I imagine in this layer. Now, um, the third layer, the pathfinding layer. So um, if you have, let's say, a decentralized exchange protocol, it gives me a way of, for instance, exchanging my Swiss francs issued by UBS bank with British pounds issued by Barclays Bank. But the payment and exchange layer does not tell me what are the set of operations I must execute in order to transfer money starting from Swiss francs and ending at New Zealand dollars. And maybe there are two or three different routes by which I could do that. Maybe one route is I go from Swiss francs, UBS Swiss francs to Barclays British pounds to uh, New Zealand dollars by ASB bank. Maybe there's another route by which I could, I, I, I start with Swiss francs and then I go to US dollars issued by Citibank. And then that from there, I do another exchange and get, and uh, get New Zealand dollars by ASB bank. And then I pay you. So there could be different paths starting from one asset and ending at another. I think I might in interject with a little anecdote here. Recently, I wanted to move some uh, cryptocurrency into fiat. And I started off with one particular cryptocurrency and I needed to somehow get that into some fiat uh, somewhere. And so what I, the path I wound up taking was, say, from this particular altcoin, 
to Bitcoin, and then I put that into the Ripple protocol, transferred it to XRP, and then I sent that to a Ripple gateway as uh, as euros. And you know, there were all of these different steps, all of these different currencies involved in that. You know, and that that was the least expensive way to do it. And so it seems that this uh, this pathfinding layer automates what was, you know, took for me considerable, I guess, cognitive effort and uh, and automates that process. It evaluates all the all the paths that you could take to go from one asset to another and it tells you the optimal path or let's say close to the optimal path and without you requiring cognitive effort. Maybe I should take another example. Right now when we are doing this call, there are packets of data that are going from my computer in Switzerland to your computer in New Zealand. And there could be many different paths by which these packets of data could go. So maybe it's going, the packets of data going from here to my local internet service provider, which goes to my national ISP, which in a way goes to the national ISP of New Zealand, goes to the local ISP of New Zealand, then then to your computer. And there are many different paths by which this information could flow. Similarly, if you look at money, money, if, if it starts from one ledger and it ends at another ledger, and there are thousands of ledgers in the world, there could be different paths that you could take. So the pathfinding layer is just a mechanism by which you can calculate the optimal. And once you have the optimal, then you can execute only those operations that are needed to traverse the optimal path. Right. So, so, so you start to imagine, so the bottom three layers, the ledger layer, so the ledger layer, just imagine in your mind that there are thousands of ledgers in the world. Then payment and exchange layer, which is a set of protocols by which you can jump from one ledger to another. I have Swiss francs and I want British pounds. I jump, I make a jump using a protocol. Or I have Swiss francs from USB and I want Swiss francs from Credit Suisse. I make another jump. So it's protocols to make these jumps between ledgers. And then the pathfinding is, what jumps should I make in order to do a transaction? So um, to go from Swiss francs to New Zealand dollars, what are the different jumps that I'm going to need in order to, in order to complete my transaction, complete my payment to you? And if you look at these three layers together, they actually start to form like a global integrated ledger because these thousands of ledgers, they can hold any asset. And we'll get into how, how we can make these ledgers for, for a moment. Just imagine there was a way to make these ledgers. But these three layers together, you can imagine them as like a global ledger that everyone is using. And this global ledger is such that it can record any asset that you wanted to record, shares, fiat money, etc. And you can go from one address and one asset on the ledger to any other address and asset on the ledger in a maximum of 10 seconds. And the, ma the maximum 10 seconds is for any operation around the world. So if you had just these standards, you could, you could have a system by which you can transfer money across the world in, in 10 seconds, starting from any, any asset and ending at any other asset. Now on top of it is the contract layer. Now let's say you had this, this system, this global ledger, and you wanted to do contracts. So Arthur and I then want to do this cricket betting contract. And tomorrow is the next big cricket match between New Zealand and India. 
and we want to bet on the outcome of that cricket match. Now we have this great ledger by which we can transfer money around the world in 10 seconds. And um, let's say there were a set of servers or as Codius project likes to call it oracles that would execute our code and the code is governing our bet. So the code is something like if New Zealand wins, increment Arthur's balance by $5. $5. If India wins, increment Meher's balance by $5. So if we wanted to do a contract, if Arthur and I wanted to do this contract, then Arthur would send money starting from his public key in New Zealand dollars and ending at say, a multi-signature account controlled by these servers and tracking US dollars. And I'll, I'll send a payment starting with me in Swiss francs to these multi-signature account controlled by the same oracles in, in US dollars. And then the oracles would execute the code and they would, and then if Arthur wins the bet, then they would credit Arthur's account with, for example, for instance, $10. So the contract execution can also become a, a, a set of standards. So the fourth layer is a way to execute contracts and this is the contract layer. And the layer on top of it is the application layer, which is, uh, which is let's say the, the graphical user interfaces we need to uh, make, make the experience of us betting uh, a really good experiences really good experience. So you can imagine this as a set of five layers like ledgers followed by protocols to jumps with between ledgers for, and on top of it, a way to find paths between, uh, between ledgers on top of it, a way to do contracts between people around the world. And it could be a pair of people, a group of people, etc. And then applications, which, which, use the power of contracts, use the power of smart contracts to do all sorts of different things. For instance, uh, you could automate business processes that relate to money. You could, uh, you could do futures contracts, options contracts, prediction markets, all of the general applications that we tend to think about in the cryptocurrency space. So this is the kind of stack I imagine. So yeah, uh, with, with smart contracts, it's interesting that Mayher mentions that uh, there's actually still discussion as recently as uh, as this last week about what a smart contract is. And again, for listeners, if you want to hear what a smart contract originally was, uh, Nick Sabo has some you know articles and papers on that from the last 15 years or so. And uh, I think a lot of people uh, in the in the space the past year have been saying smart contracts that probably aren't smart contracts. They're, they're probably secure computation. Uh, methods and that's not to diminish their value or utility but uh, I think the term smart contract is overused uh, I know that there are some projects in this space uh, I think bit halo and black halo I think it's from the same guys and um, they're trying to provide some kind of uh, smart contracts what they call a smart contract trust Adams trying to do something similar um, and I, I know that uh, the contracting systems uh, of, of ethereum and pebble and, and so forth are are supposedly using smart contracts too. I, I think the verdict's still out. I think you really need to bring some in, some lawyers like uh, Pamela uh, Morgan. She's been talking about this. Preston uh, Preston Byrne from Eris. Um, and I know Peter Todd. He's he's jokes on Twitter all the time about most people not understanding what a smart contract is, and that's okay. You know, there's obviously uh, there's still room to to define what it is and what it's not. And I think it'll be some time before we actually see something a real smart contract in place because at the end of the day, if it uh, if 
whatever jurisdiction you're in doesn't recognize it, then uh, it might not be much of a, a real contract where you had a, a meeting of the minds and so forth. Also, uh, you know, before I forget, I should, I should mention it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me point out, I'm not anti-Bitcoin. I still, I'm not one of those guys who thinks Bitcoin is going to die tomorrow. I know there's a lot of... Uh, quote unquote panic right now because market prices and stuff like that. I actually think it's still going to be a niche irrespective of what happens in the next year or so. Uh, just like Linux, desktop Linux is a niche today. Uh, maybe it'll become huge. Uh, maybe, you know, the, the maximalist story is true and, you know, Bitcoin will be this, everything for everyone. Uh, I, 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 I don't think that's going to be the case. I, I still think it'll just, in the long run, just be a, a tradable asset um, for, for various exchanges and, and people. People like exchanging it on, on exchanges for some reason. So maybe that will, that consumer behavior will continue. Um, and also, um, this is an aside, this awesome stuff you pointed out. And now I suppose, now that we've got the stack laid out, it might be a good idea to look at um, how exactly the payment and exchange layer operates. So, um, so, first, so first, actually, before going to the payment and exchange, we must, we must understand how we will make these thousands of ledgers to track all of the assets of the world. Uh, are you talking about one, uh, one ledger per asset? Is, is that how I'm getting it? Or I mean, because we're so used to seeing multiple assets on a ledger and what is generally called the 2.0 space, even though I know right now we're talking about something something very different from uh, from what is seen as the um, you know the the new generation. I mean this is something very parallel. Yeah. So this is this is actually a completely different idea, I guess. Uh, completely different school maybe. It is one ledger per asset. And there are thousands yep. of these ledgers tracking different assets. How do we make these ledgers? In my opinion, the Hyperledger project is a pioneer project that is really going, a really a good model for what the ledger layer standard or ledger layer protocol is going to look like. What is the Hyperledger protocol? So the Hyperledger value transfer protocol is a, is a very simple protocol by which a set of different parties, set of defined parties can set up a consensus process. So if, you, if you'd imagine, if you imagine like a set of 100 companies, for instance, uh, one of those companies is Google, one is Amazon, one is the company Hyper, one, uh, there's, an, there's a bunch of startups in this set, maybe a bunch of banks in this set, and there are 100 different companies. Each of these companies contribute one node, and these 100 nodes can together set up a consensus process. And the consensus process that Hyperledger uses is practical Byzantine fault tolerance, but it could be other kinds of consensus processes in the future. Now on this consensus process, some other entity like another bank or a company like Apple can issue its shares, can create a ledger on the consensus process and issue shares or fiat money. So Apple could issue its shares on, on the consensus process or another bank like UBS in Switzerland could use the consensus process to create a ledger and issue francs. The protocol itself, the Hyperledger protocol itself is just a standard anyone can use to create a consensus process and any other entity, whether it be person, company, decentralized autonomous organization can create ledgers and issue assets. The important thing about Hyperledger is these are minimal trust ledgers, not zero trust ledgers. So when you're doing a hundred node consensus process, you are trusting that 34 of these nodes will not conspire. If they conspire maliciously, then 
they can kill liveness that is the consensus process stops making forward progress and if that happens you have legal recourse because the identities of all the node owners are known and clients can always always prevent malicious effects of double spending so whenever a double spend happens on the system it is immediately visible to uh, to the to the client so it can it can never uh, you can configure clients in a way that they never think a transaction has gone through and it hasn't gone through they can always uh, defend against the effects of a double spend so these ledgers are not zero trust trying to be zero trust ledgers like bitcoin is but they are trying to be minimal trust ledgers the advantage of this minimal trust approach is that you have excellent transaction speed so the transactions get confirmed in one second and for bitcoin this is 600 seconds so that's a 500 fold 600 fold improvement in confirmation times transaction throughput goes gets a 1000 fold improvement so bitcoin is five transactions per second today but a hyperledger consensus process can do 5000 transactions per second a 100 node consensus process can do 5000 transactions per second and the maintenance cost of the cost of creating a consensus process and maintenance cost is also lower by a factor of 1000 compared to bitcoin so bitcoin consumes 500 million dollars per year to maintain the system a hyperledger consensus process would be say 200000 dollars of capital cost plus 550000 dollars per year in recurring improvements and electricity so for let's say a quarter million dollars per year you can set up a 100 node minimal trust consensus process and create ledgers on that process now when we talk about this though we're talking about are you talking about um multiple consensus processes per uh per implementation so say so you you lay down that infrastructure you can then have multiple ledgers running on that with all of that those benefits or you know because we generally imagine uh imagine bitcoin tracking thousands of assets or you know many many assets and uh, and providing security for all of those with that single infrastructure whereas what you're talking about is modular infrastructure with um with a limited number of ledgers on each consensus process so one consensus process could could track two different ledgers so in a in a 100 node consensus process it may be that apple issued its shares on that even ibm issued its shares on the process so the process itself is tracking apple shares and ibm shares and then there's another process that is tracking francs for the ubs there are hundreds of consensus processes for the whole world and each process can track multiple ledgers but there's only one ledger per asset i'm d- i'm just trying to get a uh, i'm just trying to just point out that this magnificent efficiency that you're talking about does have you know there there are some compromises potentially to be made and there may be and because we're going to because we're talking about having or oh, hundreds of consensus processes internationally the the maintenance cost and the uh, and the outlay does ultimately wind up at close to what we uh what we see for bitcoin even you know i mean although we do see massive uh you know massive performance improvement and um and more modularity and and a more secure uh, and a more secure environment i just wanted to put that put that in there for the sake of um you know a, a balanced uh, a balanced viewpoint the thing to bear in mind though is um <clears throat> if you have one consensus process doing 5000 transactions a second then 100 consensus processes 
will do half a million transactions per second ah uh, yes okay i see what you're saying and if you imagine uh, spending to uh, let's say 250 million dollars to set up these 100 processes that 250 million dollars is going to buy you half a million transactions per second unlike bitcoin which is buying you only five transactions per second <laughs> yeah that's it's that's a really uh that that really sums up the difference in um in performance pretty well doesn't it yeah that that sums up the difference and it's also a matter of speed like confirmation time of 1 second so like cost to performance what the way we call this at hyperledger is uh, we are affordable decentralization we are trying to find the balance between performance and decentralization so our view is that decentralization is useful but after a point the extra gain in trust is not enough to compensate for cost so if you decentralize a process over 100 companies maybe adding the 101st company isn't going to really increase the trust in the ledger because it's already hard for 34 companies to conspire together to kill liveness and all of these companies are known and you have legal recourse against these companies so there is a point with decentralization that decentralization becomes good enough for most of the applications in the world and our our argument is we want to get to this good enough point without sacrificing performance i think that's a pretty well understood compromise that uh that needs to be made and um so where do you um where do you go from there okay so so now 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 there are, there are there are other other small things as well and these are these are very small it's that because this design is modular it scales around the world for instance the a chinese bank could let's say issue on a on a consensus process run by chinese owned nodes so as long as it it knows who these nodes are and can trust them as a group that's fine so this can really scale all around the world because you are only trusting the people you want to trust it is also measurable and quantifiable decentralization there can be a rating rating agency in the world that that goes and sees how many nodes are on a consensus process and it gives a rating to the consensus process starting from a plus which is very well decentralized to d minus which is quasi centralized and uh, different applications need different levels of trust and issuers can choose what kind of process they want to issue their assets on so i'm getting the sense that um the security of the ledger is quite closely tied to the quality of the asset that's that's being traded because presumably a high quality asset would ensure that it, it was traded on a really high quality um ledger presuming that the people were were competent you would assume that they would really manage the uh manage the ownership of their stake really well because this is you know this is tracking ownership and that's a pretty important thing if you really care about uh if you really care about your your asset you're going to make sure that the ownership of it is extremely secure and extremely well protected exactly exactly that is that is correct so our belief is that if if suppose you're a small grocery chain and you want to create a loyalty point system maybe a consensus process that has only five nodes controlled by two companies is good enough for you because your asset is not that high that high value an asset and if you are apple wanting to issue your shares you want a very decentralized process with 200 different nodes doing the process so the market can find all of these configurations and high value assets 
can gravitate to high trust ledgers and low value assets can gravitate to low trust ledgers and all we need to do make all these ledgers is just one protocol or maybe not even one a set of protocols that are similar but do essentially a similar thing now now the second second question becomes if if we are if we have thousands of ledgers then what are the ways by which i can jump from one ledger to another ledger so i have one asset in one ledger but i want to hold now another asset in another ledger for this we are going to need in my opinion four protocols but this is up for debate one is a decentralized exchange protocol a decentralized exchange protocol is um, meher owns usd city bank in one ledger and arthur owns euros issued by fedor in another ledger and meher and arthur want to exchange their assets so they need a protocol to do this exchange and that's a decentralized exchange protocol this decentralized exchange protocol we can structure in a way that it gets executed in 2 seconds and uh, can exchange assets of any size starting from 50 euros to 100 euros to 100000 and there is no third party in the middle it is completely decentralized we are interacting over the internet to exchange our assets so that's the decentralized exchange protocol the hyperledger design is such that the performance is really good it's just 2 seconds unlike some of the decentralized exchange protocols uh, that are trying to be built on bitcoin which take 2 hours this is just 2 seconds the other kind of payment protocol is one where you want to pay in the same asset so for instance i owns usd from city bank and i want to pay arthur who who wants payment in uh, in usd but from wells fargo and we wanted want a peer to peer way of doing it we don't want a bank to process our transaction we don't want mastercard we don't want visa now we want a bank to process our transaction so i own 100 dollars from city bank want to pay to wells fargo arthur the protocol we can develop is uh, what i call a static liquidity payment processing protocol the protocol is such that if 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 there's tim who is fine holding assets both from wells fargo and city bank and he has some static liquidity that is money he doesn't need right now then he can create a channel between these two ledgers so he can create a a bridge or a channel and deposit his money in this channel and that's all he needs to do when he wants to withdraw the money he can take it out of the channel anytime he wants to but what happens with this channel is if i want to pay you then i deposit my the money i want to pay into my side of the channel so i make a transaction from in the city bank ledger from my account to to one end of the channel on the city bank ledger and then the other side of the channel on the wells fargo ledger makes a payment to arthur on that ledger you can have essentially these channels to do peer to peer payments so i can route payments in dollars or let's say francs or any other currency in a peer to peer fashion through a protocol like that so one ex- one decentralized exchange protocol one static liquidity payment pro- processing protocol for peer to peer payments and then two protocols to do bank mediated payment processing so the other kind of way you could do payment processing in dollars the same case city bank to wells fargo is i start at city bank i tell my bank which is city bank to take money from my account but have that money deposited in arthur's account at wells fargo and the banks 
internationally use two kinds of systems, which is a real-time gross settlement system. This is called the Fedwire system in the United States. And they can also use a deferred net settlement system, which is uh, called ACH in the United States. And what these systems are doing is that when I, when a customer from Citibank wants to pay another person from Wells Fargo, Citibank needs to pay Wells Fargo money from the Federal Reserve. And these systems mediate this transfer of money from Citibank to Wells Fargo. And we can do these kinds of transactions through two protocols, uh, which, are, which is called the real-time gross settlement protocol and a deferred net settlement protocol. So there are four protocols in total, a deferred exchange, a decentralized exchange protocol, a peer-to-peer -peer payments protocol, a real-time gross settlement protocol, and a deferred net settlement protocol. The last two of these are bank mediated, the other two are peer-to-peer. -peer. So then, as you'd imagine, like any, any transaction now, let's say starting at Swiss francs and ending at New Zealand dollars, you can imagine a transaction like that as comprising of sub-transactions like for instance to go from Swiss francs to New Zealand dollars maybe there's a way by which I can do a decentralized exchange from my ledger to the British pounds ledger of Barclays then do a peer-to-peer -peer payment to the British pounds ledger of HSBC then do a decentralized exchange to get New Zealand dollars at ADB bank and then pay Arthur. So any, any payment that you want to do, any transfer of value that you want to do can be seen as a sum of these operations that were described earlier. So um, if you had a way of knowing what, what operations need to be done in order to transfer money, you could execute the operations and transfer money through your mobile device. To do this, what I propose is uh, a pathfinding system in which there are multiple competitive services around the world that do pathfinding on demand. So let's say there's a service operated by a small startup company that does pathfinding. So when I want to want my payment to start in Swiss francs and end in New Zealand dollars, I give my, I give that order to this pathfinding service. It has a database of all of the ledgers in the world and the different paths that my payment could take it calculates which is going to be the optimal one for me. And that service then returns to my mobile client that I need to do such and such set of decentralized exchanges and peer-to-peer -peer payments. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, I had one thing I wanted to say, and I'm sure you've got tons of information you don't want anymore, but uh, the one thing that I thought may her stressed uh, really well, um, if you're recording, I guess you go. Yeah. The one thing I thought Mayer stressed really well was um, the, the incorrect analogy with TCP IP. Uh, if, if you think about it with, with, with IP packets, you don't have people sitting around, you know, effectively hoarding TCP IP packets uh, with the belief that they're going to increase in value. That's not what the value proposition of, of IP, the IP protocol is. Uh, it, it'd be like going to like the New York subway metro or any of these subway stations and taking those coins and then bringing them home and putting them underneath your pillow thinking that they're going to appreciate in value. That's not what the value is. The value is being able to use the subway system. The New York subways is going to, you know, create more of these coins effectively, right? And that's the same thing like with, with, with TCP IP. 
VIP, you don't have 21 million packets. It was not a finite amount of, of, of those. And I described this, I think it was in chapter eight, how we, we were using the wrong analogy to describe what, what, what Bitcoin is. And, and I think it's, it's very obvious empirically uh, how this plays out because Mayer mentioned special interest groups and how they'll effectively fork it. And you see this with these different alt chains where NXT, for example, um, some of the people involved in that community were unhappy with the distribution. So they took the code and they forked and creating any NEM with their own distribution scheme. So you have this happen time and again. We have like over 500 coins. Some of them uh, obviously started from, from forks of others based on this, this issue of distribution. And you don't have that happening with SMTP or HTTP, you know, there's, there's no beneficiary of holding these particular packets, so there's no necessarily incentive to just you know, fork it. Um, and I think that's that's one of the, or I guess two of the reasons for why uh, I think this is an incorrect analogy. And uh, I'm just uh, not sure if, if, if that will ever be sorted out because the community is uh, is resistant to, to change in terms of looking at ways to, to uh, I guess you could say, um, to rebase the monetary supply as something that they, they won't touch. And that's obviously their, their call. That's not something that I can, I could force on them or would want to ever force on them. But anyways, um, yeah, I just wanted to let the listeners believe, uh, see that, that Mayher's theory actually plays out in empirical reality. Thanks for joining us, Dominic. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think, um, the, the, at the heart of all, Byzantine fault tolerant solutions um, is this thing called the civil problem. And the civil problem is that whenever you have a group of nodes that want to agree on some outcome, and that could just be adding a new block to the blockchain, if an adversary, when I say an adversary, I just mean a bad guy who wants to screw things up, um, wants to break the system, if it's just based on voting, you can just add more nodes to the system until he wins the vote, right? He can just add more network participants. Um, and those are called sybils. So um, Byzantine fault tolerance is already complex, but it's it, it, before um, making any assumption about how many um, uh, nodes or what proportion of your network is actually Byzantine and is controlled by an adversary, um, we, we have to consider how that proportion is locked. So, obviously, we can see if, if we have just a network where every, every node has some cryptographic identity and all the nodes just vote to create an outcome, that's, on the face of it, quite easy to um, uh, corrupt. The adversary can just add more nodes until he wins the vote. So, what Satoshi did was he said, okay, we're not going to have nodes in the Bitcoin network. Instead, we're um, going to provide a, a casting, a deciding casting vote to whoever solves the current puzzle. So the Bitcoin network has a, makes a calculation of the current difficulty level and all of the miners um, compete to solve the, to be the first to solve the current puzzle. And, and if they solve the puzzle, that gives them um, a deciding vote, which they just broadcast to the network. And it's important as well to notice that nobody knows who is going to get this deciding vote in advance. They just solve the puzzle and broadcast this block, which is appended to, to the blockchain. So it was a very ingenious solution to the civil problem. Rather than having nodes voting, 
Uh, Satoshi kind of just said, look, there's going to be no nodes. It's just whoever uses their hashing power to solve the current puzzle. When I say solve the current puzzle, I mean just find, find a, a, a nonce that you can put in your block that, that means it hashes to something that has some number of leading zeros, right? Um, we're not going to have voting. We're not going to have nodes. We're just going to have um, puzzle-solving power. And whoever solves the current puzzle first gets to, gets to cast this deciding vote. Um, and that really was why um, the first solution to a sort of decentralized, uh, uh, you know, for, for, for a decentralized network, um, you know, with, with you know, currency tokens came from the cryptographic community and not from the distributed computing community. Um, now, the problem with Satoshi's solution is that there are no nodes. It's exactly that. So you can't really structure the network very easily at all. And you need to structure the network in order to be able to partition work. Um, and it's important to understand, to, to, to understand that, that, that the reason you have to partition work in a, in a, in a internet scale system is so that you can scale out. Um, and, you know, for example, if you, if you go to Facebook, you'll find that, you know, there's not just one great big database server. Users are being mapped to different database servers on their ID. And, um, at the moment, Bitcoin can't do anything like that because it doesn't have any nodes. There's no way of doing a mapping. Um, and that's why you have this problem with the block size. Whoever gets to solve, whoever solves the puzzle gets to cast this deciding vote, has to package all of the transactions into a single block and distribute that through the network. And, and that obviously, you know, can't scale beyond a certain point. So, um, well, one of the things I'm interested in is how you can, um, design networks that do have nodes that are firstly resistant to the civil problem and secondly have different consensus mechanisms that allow partitioned nodes, i.e. a network where the nodes are structured and assign different responsibilities um, that allow them to securely reach um, consensus in the presence of some proportion of, of Byzantine adversaries. Actually, um, well, I think because there's been so much focus on um, proof of work and Satoshi's solution recently, um, a lot of people aren't aware that Generally, consensus and also um, Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus has been, um, you know, a very active area of research in computer science. In fact, there's a whole branch of computer science dedicated to it for, dedicated to it for about 30 years. Um, and there are a wide variety of different um, algorithms for bringing nodes to consensus. Um, but all of them make some assumption about the maximum number of um, Byzantine nodes. And this is a bit of a generalization, but within a synchronous network, these algorithms can never tolerate a third or more Byzantine nodes. So you have to, um, when using these um, algorithms, you have to um, imagine a network um, and, and where, you know, more than two thirds of the nodes are correct or good. And that, that's the restriction. But um, if you can address the civil problem and you can um, realistically make that assumption, 
um, there are lots of advantages to these, these algorithms. Um, specifically, once they've run, once the protocol that they define runs, all of the correct nodes are in universal agreement. So there's no need for forking or anything like that. The nodes are brought to universal agreement and they know that, um, and they, for example, can all provide a signature that they've agreed to this decision and, and thereafter they can be prevented from, you know, um, putting their signatures to another decision at the same level because um, that, that would show that they're Byzantine and they'd be expelled from the network. How do you, um, how do you see these different approaches that exist or that are, that are currently being employed right now? How do you see them stacking up against one another? Well, in my own research interests are combining um, the blockchain construct with uh, traditional Byzantine uh, fault-tolerant consensus algorithms. So um, specifically in my case, I'm interested in um, Byzantine um, fault-tolerant consensus algorithms using a, a synchronous network model. That means that no assumptions are made about timing. So that, for example, if a node doesn't supply a message, you can't make an assumption as to whether they've crashed, whether they're Byzantine and just withholding the network, the message, or whether they're you know, a correct node on the DDoS. There's no timing assumptions at all, which is very important for, for, for security. Um, I'm interested in um, what, what, are, what are randomized consensus protocols where a source of randomness is used um, to bring the nodes to consensus, which is a kind of counterintuitive thing, right? How, how, how are a bunch of nodes out there on the network going to use a source of um, randomness to reach agreement? Um, but the, um, you know, the funny thing is it does work very well and it creates these um, algorithms which terminate in constant expected time. And also um, typically leader-free. And leader-free means that all of the nodes have the same role. The protocol isn't dependent on any one node taking a leadership role. And that's different actually to Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a leader in the sense that whoever solves the puzzle is, that, is the leader at that moment and they're casting a deciding vote. But the, Bitcoin's a special case. Um, it's great because no one knows who's going to solve the puzzle in advance, so you can't attack the leader. But generally speaking, you, you want to use consensus algorithms that are leader-free, where there is no... Um, you know, there's no special node that is elected as a leader that then takes the other, you know, orchestrates the other nodes coming to consensus. And I, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, an algorithm called the Paxos algorithm. Okay, so, so the Paxos um, was, um, it's not Byzantine fault tolerant, but it's a consensus algorithm created by a guy called Leslie Lamport um, that um, allows nodes to be brought to consensus um, over a partially synchronous network. And it's actually used by um, Google to implement its chubby locking service, for example. Now, there's um, uh, another version of that that was um, created, I think, about 1999, the practical Byzantine fault tolerance. And it makes various adjustments to Paxos and um, you know, it becomes tolerant to some number of Byzantine faults. Now, the thing with algorithms like that is they're actually... Um, leader driven so um the nodes elect a leader and that leader um then orchestrates the consensus process if you like which, and, and having a leader makes things much much simpler um the problem with with those kind of protocols is that 
imagine that one of the participating nodes is, you know, controlled by an adversary and he wants to disrupt things. He can just wait and see which node is elected as leader and then through some back channel tell some DDoS hose, okay, now you want to kind of attack him, right? And one might imagine that, you know, if, if IP addresses and so on were stripped out of the network, that whoever was the, um, whoever became the leader was attacked. And so this protocol would just get locked, locked in the cycle of re-electing the leader. And there's various other attacks too. That Once one node becomes the leader, he might choose to only release his messages on the edge of some timeout window or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, really delay things. So I, um, in my case, you know, I, I like to look at um, consensus protocols that are leader-free, um, which means that every node participating has, a, has an equal role. And it, just any, any proportion of those, a third of them, just under a third of them, can, can be faulty and the thing still works. Now, the two things there, I mean, I'd like to hear what your solution to the problem is or how you view um, a potential solution to the problem. But also, it's pretty important to understand how exactly – how feasible that attack is, because, I mean, do you, is there a leader? Who's who's the leader in a in say in the Ripple network? Ah, okay. So that's a good question. Um, I'll be a bit controversial here. I mean, Ripple and Stellar currently don't have a consensus protocol. Well, they they did have what they thought was a consensus protocol, but um, I mean, it, it, consensus is a really tricky area and actually um, you have to be quite formal in your definition of, of your consensus system um, and you know that starts with defining a network model I mean am I making timing assumptions for example is it synchronous or partially synchronous or, or, or am I just saying there's no timing assumptions can be made in it's synchronous asynchronous sorry um, how many nodes um, what portion of nodes can be Byzantine um, before this protocol fails and so on. There's all these different assumptions you have to make. And then you have to write this down in math, and then you actually have to prove that math. And it's very easy to, to, to devise a scheme that looks like it works, um, but actually it doesn't. And, and Ripple um, fell into that trap. And they eventually, I think, under obviously some pressure from investors, you said, you know, make some noise and tell everybody about our, our, our system, publish this paper, describing my consensus protocol. And I remember reading it and just thinking, oh dear, you know, there's just no way this can work. Um, there's all kinds of assumptions that um, unsound and um, they, they didn't handle it synchrony properly. And I, at the time, made some predictions about um, it not working. And Stella used the same system and then they tried to scale out their nodes. And yeah, it also um, went, went wrong in, in, in the way I thought it would. And, um, their network forked and they had a big problem. And so what happened was, that I think one of the other one of them have gone down to using a single validating node now. So it's the effectively a centralized system. Now, in the case of Stellar, they're developing a new um, consensus system with the help of a guy called David Mazieres, who's, um, uh, I think, heads the Stanford Secure Systems Lab. And no doubt he'll produce a you know, um, sound uh, protocol from Hughes. And I'd imagine... Ripple will return the favor since they were fought and, and just um, bring bring back, uh, you know, adopt the same consensus system. So currently, um, yeah, Ripple, Ripple and Stellar don't really have a consensus system, but I think there's a new one that will work in, in the pipeline. Now that we have this, uh, it's a little bit shocking. I have read about that, but I didn't really fully understand the extent of it. This fellow Meher Roy's uh, white paper that's, it's about um, basically presenting a, an OSI model for the 
internet of uh, of money, as they say. Um, yeah, it's 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 a really cool paper because it's it's really all encompassing. There's a bunch of different parts of it, but one of those uh, one of those elements is his he's made the assumption of, um, or at least he's proposed to use um, hyperledger as a um, piece of it as as the ledger layer, even though that's that's perfectly that can be traded out and it's not a it's um it's it's not essential. What does the consensus algorithm of the future look like? Well, um, okay, that's a good question. So I'm um, hyperledger using practical Byzantine fault tolerance. And I should say, by the way, that's a sound algorithm. It's not the algorithm I would choose because it's um, not leader-free. But it's a very well-known and well-studied algorithm, and it's sound. Um, the, the drawbacks with it are, as I said, firstly, that it's um, not leader-free. And the other one is that it doesn't scale out very well if you have a very large number of nodes. So um, I created um, a consensus algorithm or framework or proof of processing, uh, which was a uh, fully asynchronous, randomized, leader-free presenting consensus algorithm. And I, you can bring 500 nodes to consensus on 500 different values with about between half a megabyte and a megabyte of messaging each, which is pretty good um, <laughs> yes. in, the, in, the, in the scheme, scheme of these protocols. Um, so because it was a randomized protocol, that meant I had to um, have a common source of randomness that all of the um, nodes could access and could also... Um, would also produce randomness on demand at a certain point in the protocol. And, and for that, I used um, uh, linearly homomorphic structure-preserving signature scheme, um, which came from a paper I read, which was um, great because um, nodes could meet distributively and they could do the setup necessary to, 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 to run this threshold signature scheme. And very briefly, it works as follows. A threshold signature scheme... Um, in, a, in a threshold signature scheme, a group of nodes all own a share of the private key. That makes sense. So they, in, in this particular scheme, they do some kind of setup. And as a result of this setup, they all own firstly a share of the private key. And secondly, they all have for everybody else um, a, a validation key to check everybody is, is, is signing things correctly. And thirdly, as a public key, right? So um, say, for example, they want to produce some shared randomness. What they do is, let's say it's communication round 42. All of them sign 42 with their piece of the private key, right? They broadcast their partial signature on round 42. And... Threshold signatures work in such a way that you only need to c collect some portion of the signature shares that have been broadcast in order to, con to construct the threshold signature. And this particular scheme was deterministic, which meant that everybody would receive the same signature. Everybody would have the same randomness, right? Um, so... You know, the, the, the great thing about it is, is that it's kind of fault tolerant. So you can set this thing up so that, um, you know, the, the, the threshold signature can only be constructed when you've got partial signatures from two thirds of nodes, right? So you, know, you can have this third of nodes that are 
malicious Byzantine, and they can, if they want to, they can distribute rubbish and they'll be rejected because of the validation keys. They can withhold their signatures. doesn't matter. You can always produce the shared randomness. And that shared randomness can be used to bring those to consensus in a randomized protocol. Um, so that kind of worked really well. Um, but I'm actually sort of, I've moved on um, further from that um, because I'm looking at uh, networks where I have dynamically selected groups of nodes where it's too expensive to do the setup first. And uh, I'm working with some cryptographers who, look, who are looking at using um, some homomorphic encryption techniques to generate that randomness in that si- si- situation um, for me. And there's also the possibility that a global blockchain could be used as a source of randomness. And actually, I, I believe one of the most um, useful things about blockchain blockchains is, is that they can produce a source of randomness. It, you, you, one, one can even imagine systems where all the blockchain does is just create, you know, a series of empty blocks, but, you know, each one has a hash and therefore it's producing, it's acting as a random beacon, if you like. Um, and the current, there's a, there's a um, French professor who, whose work I've been um, lucky enough to be privy to, and uh, he, he's um, uh, got a, uh, none of these randomized consensus protocols um, where the common coin can be a weak common coin, which means that it only has to be probably common. So, so long as everybody sees the same randomness most of the time, that's sufficient. And so I'm looking at ways of um, combining kind of global blockchain, which provides a source of randomness with these kind of randomized um, consensus protocols. And I think actually in the future, it's, it's, it, it's going to be combinations of blockchain technology with traditional Byzantine fault tolerant consensus technology that's going to produce the, the best results. I started reading all these cypherpunk documents and I actually work in the vaccines industry. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a programmer. I'm not a cypherpunk and neither am I, am I a finance guy. I work in the vaccines industry and maybe uh, daily I see other kinds of people than the cypherpunks talk to maybe and i i i somehow had difficulty imagining that the people in front of me are going to use bitcoin just to kill the government for example these kinds of ideas are they don't do not exist in the environment that i find myself in at least i i always wanted to use cryptographic ledgers and go somewhere more pragmatic where maybe we are solving the remittance problem so if you have a system like this it can solve the remittance problem because you don't need any third parties now. Like everything is peer to peer, any currency you want. So you can solve the remittance problem. Maybe it's my background that took me to this idea. And I, I was really surprised that it, it, it did not exist. And um, sometimes I feel really lucky that I'm the one who's writing this paper because you understand, like it, uh, yeah, it's like the, the OSI uh, framework is just so obvious. One of the big problems um, with this idea that people will adopt Bitcoin as a currency is that you're demanding uh, consumers change their behavior to fit your paradigm as opposed to um, tailoring something to the way that they operate and just improving their experience. Like at the Bitcoin South conference that they had in New Zealand, 
People kept making the point that Bitcoin doesn't stand a chance in New Zealand because we have such awesome payment systems here. Like, you know, we have um, we have FPOS and tap and go. So, you know, you just go, you just tap your card, it comes straight out of your bank account, no fee. You know, it's the best payment thing you could possibly imagine. You know, the only someone made the point, the only way you could improve um, point of sale payment in New Zealand would be to have a machine that extends the card for you so that your arms don't have to move. You know, what's easier, you know, other other jurisdictions to adopt that kind of technology or for entire world consumer base to adopt an entirely new, highly volatile currency? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I concur with you. Uh, I mean, there's a wall to Bitcoin. So, but beyond this enthusiast community, Bitcoin will have a really hard time breaking in. And I sometimes wonder, like all of these VCs, they're investing $250 million on on, on, on Bitcoin and uh, maybe it's all going to go to waste. Is, is that what we are saying? Well, I think the, um, the Winklevoss twins summed it up really well. Uh, one of them did. He said, um, go into a room and the smartest people are talking about Bitcoin. And I was like, wow, man, you have any idea what a dangerous attitude that is? That's assuming, you know, smart people talk about quantum physics. You know, it doesn't mean there's any money to be made there. Dude. You know, think about this for a second. So, so Arthur, what I think is um, there's some parts of the technology that are that are going to be really useful. For instance, the smart contracts part. Like, um, but I think uh, smart contracts have a lot of utility, and it is the reason why um, we are going to convert USD into a cryptographic form because um, it's easier to interface them with with smart contracts. Like, um, um, <clears throat> if so right now, like we took the example of just a bet, right? It's a bet between you and me and we are expressing that bet as a code. Uh, what really becomes interesting is when you have lots of pieces of code and they cooperate together to do something. Let's say I had kind of a computational problem. Uh, let's say there was an image recognition problem. Like uh, I have an image and we want to recognize some asp- uh, like who this is or some aspect of the image. And maybe there are different companies that specialize in different parts of the image. There's a company that specializes in, I don't know, ethnicity. Like you give them an image, they can recognize ethnicity. Some, 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 something that are specializing in the eyes, etc. You could essentially have a smart contract that that mediates my relationship as a consumer to all of these group of companies that are doing different things on my request, and then coordinating to return my request. And uh, this necessarily involves um, kind of uh, you have to divide your payment into many different parts. And whenever you're going to get into these systems where a payment needs to be divided into many different parts and the division is quite complex, then you would want a code to do this kind of division. And this is the kind of ability that smart contracts are going going to bring. And I think it is really the smart contracts that are going to be useful. There are some aspects like decentralized exchange. It's pretty useful to exchange USD for Apple shares without using the New York Stock Exchange or the brokers or central securities depository, etc. But these are just technologies that will start, I think, cryptographic money. Uh, the real thing that is going to prove its utility is going to be this kind of contracting where you can apply arbitrary logic on on money the the whole crypto cryptocurrency model is what translates um 
any uh, any value that can be pegged to a token into something that can be operated on by a smart contract. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's that um, that smart contract functionality is what doesn't exist in the current system that we have. We have to have people do things. Whereas, yeah, all that can be automated away when we start using the uh, contracts. Uh, anyway, let's uh, let's uh, let's crack on because I'm, you know, this is actually turning into probably the most comprehensive interview I've ever uh, <laughs> I've ever recorded. I'm going to have to edit through all of this. So we were we were talking about pathfinding and the mobile clients. Yeah. So pathfinding is simple. I have a mobile client. I send a request to a centralized service. Tell me the best path to go from one asset to the other. It calculates the best path, sends me back, and then I can use the protocols in the lower layer payment and exchange to do the jumps and route my payment across the world. That's in a nutshell pathfinding layer. Now, once you have these three ledgers, protocols for payment and exchange and pathfinding, you can transfer any kind of asset from one person to another. So an operation like um, starting from New Zealand dollars and sending uh, money to a multi-signature account controlled by a set of oracles becomes feasible. And the set of oracles could be operating on another ledger, another ledger like Citibank ledger. And um, there could be hundreds of oracle sets around the world. So it's easy to send money to any of these Oracle sets for me and for you. And we could write a piece of code which governs our contract. And these Oracles are going to execute the contract. And I've already said that Oracle equals server in our case. So if you wanted to do a contract, the simplest one is the cricket bet. Then you send money using the Internet of money to a multi-signature account. I send money to the multi-signature account. We send our code to the oracles. They execute the code and they send back money to us uh, in, in the currencies that we want. So that is the contract layer. Um, the contract layer is essentially these oracles. And the beautiful thing about the Internet of money is anyone can make these oracles. It's permissionless. So, um, Anyone can make oracles uh, and anyone can execute code on these oracles. So we have a situ situation of permissionless innovation. And then you have the final layer, which is the application layer, which is if, for example, the smart contract is a game of poker, then that is a poker application on the Internet of Money. You could have more complicated applications like I want to rent hard drive space from you. And in a way, um, this is also a smart contract. It's I'm sending you data. And if you send me back that data correctly after three or four months when I request it, then I need to pay you some amount of money. So that is also, a, in a way, a smart contract. It's also, in a way, a contract. So you could have applications that allow people to, to share space on their drives. You could have applications such as futures, options, or any other kind of contract. You could have entirely new kinds of use cases where you're using this functionality to, for instance, in a company coordinate 
the purchasing operations. So um, all of this thing can be possible because you have cryptographic money in the bottom and a way to do arbitrarily complex codes on the top. And that triggers a tsunami of innovation in the future to build all of the different kinds of applications. And uh, that is my vision for the Internet of Money. That's it. This has been such a privilege. I'll never forget it. And there are bound to be more sporadic releases in the future. But I'm working on some more in-depth stuff these days covering identity systems and decentralized social organization. I'm also obsessed with the cypherpunks. So much to research, and with a podcast, you can pretty much email anyone, and they'll talk to you about whatever. Just the other day, I was speaking with his fellow Barry Pateman, an anarchist historian who was active in the British coal miners' strikes in 84. Total legend. And hopefully, some of the ideas and contacts he gave me will develop into a short series. With any luck, Adam will deem some of this tangential stuff LTB relevant and worthy. You can follow my online reading on Twitter, at Arthur Falls. Or reach me by email at beyondbitcoinshow at gmail.com. Thank you, Tim, Mahir, and Dominic. Find Tim Swanson at ofnumbers.com, Dominic Williams at pebble.io, and Mahir Roy is on medium.com forward slash at Mahir. The paper and architecture for the internet of money is linked in the notes, of course. And all those guys are worth following on Twitter too. Richard Toth has been mastering the last few episodes and arranged some of them as well. His work is prompt, inexpensive, and of excellent quality. Find him at podcast-mastering.com. CSUS, that's C-S-U-S, gave me the music. Check him out on SoundCloud. He's the magic word too, by the way. C-S-U-S. Thank you all for listening. Godspeed. Godspeed.